from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today is going to be taken from the reading we just heard in the Gospel of Mark. You may be We begin today with the word of prayer. Almighty God, it is your glory to show mercy to your people. And you have called us here now, Lord, that we might hear your words of mercy and be forgiven and strengthened. We pray this day, Lord, that you would show us what it means to be great in your kingdom, even as you have shown greatness by dying on the cross for our sins. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. This past week, I had a memory pop up on the social media, on the Facebook. Now, I'm I'm not a big fan of the social media. I think it tends to be rather divisive. I think it fosters a discourse that can be uh, awfully arrogant and harmful and and sort of poisonous to the culture. So the irony is I spend a great deal of time on that thing. Uh, My hypocrisy is, is beyond bounds at this point. But one of the good things, Uh, that the Facebook does, is that they show you uh, something called Facebook memories. And in those memories, they will show you a post that you had on that particular day from however many years ago. Uh, And this past week, I had a post that showed up from six years ago. It was a series of pictures that I took six years ago uh, up in Seedy Valley. Now, I'm going to give you a little history about myself. I used to serve at a church in Moorpark, California, just outside of Seedy Valley, right next door uh, there. And on Wednesday evenings, I would go to a retirement home in Simi. Those folks were unable to leave the retirement home on Sunday mornings, and so we took church to them. Uh, We would go, and we would uh, have a sermon and have prayers and sing hymns. We had a a sweet lady, Ruth. She was like, I don't know, I think Ruth was 96, uh, and she played organ for us. And she couldn't see like four feet in front of her face, but man, could she play that organ. It was incredible. And we would say it was just a wonderful time, and, and we would go, and we would preach and sing, and it was wonderful. Well, this particular Wednesday, six years ago, as I was driving up to the retirement home, I was driving past the retirement home's next-door neighbor, the Reagan Memorial Library there on Madera Road. We were literally right in the shadow of the Reagan. Uh, And six years ago, on this day, uh, there was the debate. The GOP debate was taking place there at the Reagan that evening. So as I was driving up, the street was littered with protesters. And so I thought, that looks like fun. So I went to the retirement home, did the job, and then came back uh, to get my selfies taken with as many protesters as I possibly could. And that was a fun night. If you're ever bored, go find a presidential debate with protesters, and you will meet all kinds of people. You will meet people who wear masks, uh, who don't want to show you that they're there. You'll meet people uh, who are from the party of Jesus, which is not the same party we are a part of. I'll be very clear with you about that. It was a fascinating night. Everybody was mad, everybody was angry, everybody was yelling except for me. I got a lot of fun selfies out of it. Well, that night I went home and I decided I'm going to watch the debate and see how this goes. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched a presidential debate before, but a presidential debate is a bunch of influential, powerful, wealthy people standing up on a stage arguing with one another about who could make the best president. That is, they're trying to figure out which one of us here on the stage is the greatest. And they do this by showing off their accolades, showing you all the accomplishments they have, laying out plans that they have for our country and how they're going to fix all of our problems. But more to the point, they sit there and point out the faults of everyone else. 
They put each other down. These are people that night who are in literally the same party. They all have like the same policies, and yet they stood up there and insulted and attacked one another to tear each other down so that they might be exalted. They wanted to prove to you which one of us is the greatest. Well, what was really interesting to me as I was looking back on that Facebook memory, I then went to see what sermon uh, I preached at the retirement home that night. And it turns out it was this very text. With the disciples, it sounds a lot like politi uh, aspiring politicians arguing among themselves which one of us is the greatest. And it's really kind of eerie how much the scriptures and our everyday lives reflect each other. So here you have the disciples. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And I always wonder, how does that conversation come up? How are you like sitting around with your friends going, hey guys, you know what? I'm better than you. Like, how does that conversation arise? Especially after what Jesus has just said. Jesus has just told the disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. There I'm going to be arrested by men. I'm going to be killed by them. And after three days, I'm going to arrive. And the disciples say nothing because they're not really sure what to do with it. They at least say nothing to Jesus. But then, when they're taken off to the side, when they're off kind of by themselves, you can kind of see the conversation going in a particular direction. Now, I don't have any official record of this. There's no footage of how the conversation arose. But my theory and my guess is that it went something like this. Jesus is off somewhere else, and the disciples look at each other and say, listen, he keeps talking about dying in Jerusalem. Like, I didn't think we were going there to die. I thought we were going there to establish a kingdom. But you know, in a rebellion like this, sometimes there's fatalities, and maybe Jesus thinks he's going to die doing this. So here's what we need to do. We need to figure out which one of us is going to be in charge. And you can just see Peter standing up and saying, well, clearly it's got to be me. Uh, I'm the one who talks to him the most. I have the most insightful things to say. I'm closest to him. It's going to be me. I'll be the next guy in charge. And then James stands up and says something like, talks the most? That just means you have the biggest mouth. It should be me. I am the son of thunder, along with my brother John. He can be my vice president. But listen, son of thunder, that's a way better tagline for a politician than the rock. Listen, I'm going to call down thunder on all of our enemies. I should be in charge. At which point Matthew stands up, and you know, Matthew the tax collector, he stands up and he says, listen guys, I've worked with the Romans for years. My foreign relations policy could smoke you guys. I know how to make this thing work. I should be in charge. At which point, Judas Iscariot stands up and says, I'm the best politician here among us. That was a cheap shot at politicians, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm the best one here among us. I've been handling the money. I've got the financial plan that's going to fix Jerusalem. I should be in charge. And you can see the conversation kind of going there. Now, again, I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but I would venture to guess that I'm not too far off. Because let's be honest here. This is all how we tend to work in this world. We all set out to prove ourselves. Big fancy theological way of saying this is we are all out for self-justification. We're all out to prove just how righteous we are, how much better we are than everyone else around us. And if you think I'm wrong, take an honest look at your Facebook page, if you are on Facebook or on social media, or have an honest listen to some of your conversations where you like to sit back and tell everybody else how wrong they are and how right you are. It feels good when we put them down and we exalt ourselves. 
makes you feel like a pastor standing up in front of everybody and saying, thank God we're not like those politicians over there. We're way better. We're the church. We're greater than everyone. But we can't get out of this. All of us do this. We all have this perpetual problem of self-justification and trying to prove how much better we are than everyone else. And Jesus just, he's got no time for this stuff in his kingdom. He has no time for such self-aggrandizing self-promotion. Jesus shows up to his disciples today, and he shows up to you and I today. And, and he sits there, and he shows us how greatness in the kingdom of God is defined in an entirely different way. It is entirely different from the way that the world defines greatness. He takes our view of greatness and he completely flips it on it. So Jesus walks up to his disciples, and again, I just, just love the way Jesus walks up to them. He goes, so, what were you guys talking about along the way as if he doesn't know, right? This is like Jesus, this is like God in the Garden of Eden uh, when Adam and Eve are hiding and sowing fig leaves together and God shows up and says, why are you guys hiding? As if he doesn't know. So Jesus walks up and asks the questions and the text says the disciples say nothing because they were being ridiculous because they were arguing about which one was better than me. You just see the disciples, they're like, they, Jesus walks up, what are you guys talking about? Nothing? You talking about, you're the one who was talking, I was talking about anything. Like they just, they won't, you know, own this in front of Jesus because he's got it. And so then Jesus does something pretty, pretty remarkable. He looks at his disciples and he says, listen, if any of you wants to be first, if any of you wants to be great, you must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And don't try and over-sentimentalize He takes a child who probably has mud and chocolate caked all over his face who's probably skinned his knees and is talking back to his parents and is being really obnoxious. And Jesus picks that child up and scoops him up in his arms. He says, listen, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You all want to be first. You want to all be great, says Jesus. Why? So people will bow down to you. So people will honor you. So people will look up to you. So people will follow you. You want to be served by others. And Jesus says, all right, if, it, if being served by others is what makes you great, then this child is the greatest one here. And you are to be his servant. You are to bow down and follow him. You are to make his needs and his life more important than your own. Because you see, in the kingdom of God, the least are the greatest, and those who have serve those who have not. By our world standards, those who are rich and powerful and mighty and strong and boast of their accomplishments and, and parade their good works and show off their religious aptitude, Jesus says, in my kingdom, those are the low ones. Those are the least. Blessed, Jesus says, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who suffer for my name's sake. Blessed are the low, the unable, the sinful. Because Jesus says, I've come for them. That's something. It's like Jesus would have been there on Madeira Road that night. It's a big debate going on up the hill, and all of these important, powerful people arguing among themselves and someone says, so Jesus, which one of these on Madeira Road tonight is the most important? And Jesus says, well, they're not in that room. 
down the hill at the retirement home, praying to me because they can't do anything else, singing my praises and trusting my word. Those are the greatest ones, and those are the ones you should serve. That's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. Be weak and low. But I can hear somebody thinking to themselves, well, that's nice and sentimental and all, and I get it, that's fine. But listen, this is kind of comparing apples to oranges, right? You're kind of talking about, uh, you know, talking about these people who are trying to be great because they have to lead a nation. And listen, I would never elect a president who's not great in that worldly sense. I would never follow a leader who is meek and humble. I would never give my allegiance to someone who is poor in spirit and willingly suffers at the hand of others. And Jesus says to you, I know you won't do that. That's why I have to come and save you because you won't follow me. I have to do all the work. <laughs> I mean, think about it. What kind of leader prioritizes the least, the weak, the helpless, or the sinner? What sort of leader sacrifices everything that would exalt him and give him all the power to fix all the world's problems? He would sacrifice all of that so that he could love his helpless, thankless enemies. What sort of humble leader, what sort of leader humbles himself, makes himself low, and lays down his life so that he might forgive his opponents and reconcile them to his father. That is to say, what sort of leader actually loves a sinner like you and me? And Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed after three days, he will rise. That's true greatness. And that is what the Lord and the King of all creation has done. Dear friends, he has done it for you. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that though we are the least in the kingdom, your Son, Jesus Christ, has come to seek and save the least, to seek and save the lost, to come and serve the lowest, and to forgive sinners like us. We pray, O Lord, you would teach us what it means to be great in your kingdom, all the while trusting you, knowing that our sins are forgiven. We are loved by you. Thank you, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.